Welcome to Techlandia, a podcast about and for the technology industry, a place to learn, connect, and engage with leaders and thinkers involved in the technology industry. You can check us out at techoregon.org, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to our latest edition of Techlandia. I'm Skip Newberry, and I'm excited to have with us today Adam Trexler, who's the CEO and founder of Valorum. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Skip. You know, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, for you to share a little bit about um, sort of uh, the company. But first, I would like to ask, uh, you know, if you could maybe take a few minutes here to, to share a little bit about your own professional journey. How did how did you uh, end up in, in in the Portland area? Oh, yeah. Well, kind of a funny story. I was actually I, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, actually in Maryland, and my Early 20s, I worked with a number of startups um, in in all kinds of sectors, but I really became familiar with early stage angel investment financing um, and kind of got tired of that and thought I was going to go in a di- totally different direction and was, was really drawn to teaching and went back to school, got a PhD at the University of London and was really uh, pursuing an academic career. I, I had a number of academic interests, but one of the big ones for me was uh, the cultural history of money. So specifically um, thinking about the early 20th century. Why did the gold standard collapse? And how did the meaning of money change as we moved from a gold standard where you could redeem your currency for gold, your paper money for gold, to something a little bit more esoteric and something based on the government or society and and the wealth that was stored there. I was really fascinated by that historical moment. Um, And, uh, you know, I was kind of just pursuing that academic world and pretty focused on that, but always had a dream to get more involved in money in the contemporary moment. It was obvious from 2008 that uh, we were in a a, a very strange time with regard to money. And, um, you know, with all the sort of banking collapses and the sudden mistrust, something that I've been thinking about for a decade, but, you know, the sudden mistrust of banking institutions and what was money and and then the emergence of cryptocurrency, et cetera. Um, And I learned about this core technology to uh, deposit significant amounts of gold onto a thin film using technology from things like semiconductors. uh, And I was just fascinated by it. And I spent maybe nine months investigating that technology, really learning about it. And I, I just was compelled. I just, I just, I had to do it. I had to get involved. And in 2012, I founded Valorum to commercialize that core technology. That's awesome. Um, and <clears throat> I, I had no idea about the, uh, 
sort of intellectual curiosity in the history of money and culture of money. Um, that's fascinating. It makes a lot of sense kind of, you know, now knowing where you are today with, with, with Florum. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, Valorum. So let's take a, if you could take us uh, from 2012 to let's say present day, um, what, what are some highlights and challenges that you encountered along the way um, as you were you know, pursuing this opportunity with Valorum? <laughs> well, I could tell you about a hundred missteps, uh, Skip, <laughs> but uh, you know, um, when I started the company, I, I really thought the technology was near done. Um, you know, I, I was working with uh, a couple of engineers, and we we were able to make a a bill um, with atomically deposited gold that was worth you know that had fifty milligrams of gold on it. So you'd have about three dollars worth of gold, and it turned out that that kind of nanotech to do that. Um, if you wanted to make 5,000 bills, you were gonna pay about $30 to manufacture $3 worth of gold, which was an utter disaster, not tenable at all. Um, the other thing was that there were real problems with the counterfeitability uh, of the bills in their early, early form. And so we really worked on three things for the first few years. It was really about, um, getting that cost structure under control at a very basic level. Um, and, and I think I about halved it every year, um, which, you know, gets harder and harder. Um, the, the second problem was really making a better and better product. And we, um, you know, I, I founded the company in, in Portland um, and we really had a wealth of, of design talent and I really tried to get better and better uh, designers to make a more and more attractive product. And I, I sort of thought that, to be honest with you, here's one of those mistakes. I thought, gold, it's fantastic. It's a world currency. It's held by central banks. People will own it for the logic of it. And uh, turns out that's not true at all. It, it has to be a beautiful product. And so we've really worked hard to get better and better artists involved uh, with the project. And, and being, you know, having the wealth of Portland for that um, with all the kind of design firms and, um, you know, design-based businesses like Nike and Adidas and, uh, you know, pick any number of others. Uh, that was really a strength for us uh, or became a strength for us. Um, and, you know, so then the third piece taking up till about 2019 was, you know, we could just deposit a certain amount of gold, but we couldn't really do different thicknesses. And, and the consequence of that was that um, we couldn't really give the amounts of gold that people wanted. So by 2019, we could deposit anywhere from $2 to about $100 worth of gold in a single bill. And at that point, we were able to span people's, you know, basically familiar paper currency um, and I want to give a bit of context there. Uh, the reason for this technology is that gold, which is a multi-trillion dollar industry, uh, trillion with a T, um, has become unaffordable to people, specifically in physical form. And so uh, a gold ounce coin, like the one I have on my desk, uh, at a $2,000 price point, it's really pricing out most of the world's population. 
And so we were trying to create more access to gold. And we thought if we could hit those price points that paper money follows, we'd be in pretty good shape. And so in 2019, we could do that. And we had been selling relatively small amounts before, but our growth just took off. Um, and um, we have doubled every single year making a physical product since 2019 through 2023. And, you know, that that's kind of been the story. Um, in 2020, obviously we had COVID and we outstripped some of our early production uh, strategies. And I started building a, or putting together a facility um, in Portland. And then, you know, we really had to hire through COVID for that, that facility, uh, get, if people remember those horrible supply chain problems, we were hit by every single one of them. Uh, we had a you know, boat on the water two months longer than it should have. We were trying to get equipment built internationally. We couldn't travel. It was, it was a really tough time to hire, to build, to uh, construct. But, you know, in spite of that all, we, we got the facility done and, um, you know, really hit our stride in 2022. And then in 2023, we're able to double capacity again in the facility. And uh, looking to do the same with with more equipment come 2024. So, um, you know, we've been on this kind of trajectory of really commercializing a very difficult physical process. And um, we're kind of going into it finally with a lot of confidence that we can can scale it as needed. That's great. So in terms of some of the... Um the the products and offerings that that you offer that you provide. I mean, can you describe a little bit what what those are and and sort of who your ideal kind of target market is in terms of is it folks who are trying to you know essentially diversify their portfolios and and you know add some assets that are going to be a little more uh, behave differently say than you know typical currency or stocks and and or or is it people who are like in in the collectible space, or is it both? Is it a combination of those things? It's really both, Skip. And and we started out actually in the collectible space because we could, uh, you know, deal with margin there. And you know, we worked with some fantastic licensors. We've you know had Disney and Star Trek and Star Wars, and um, currently we're just starting to get into the trading card space and work with um, two of the biggest. Uh, trading card companies there for you know NFL, NBA, MLB, B cards, and and I'm really excited about those and the margins that we're able to generate there. But the the kind of big play has always been in this uh, currency space, and I mean currency broadly. Um, currency is this enormous space, and it's one that you know I I don't think a lot of your audience will be familiar with thinking about as it is, which is to say uh, there's about $2.3 trillion worth of paper U.S. dollars out in, in circulation. Uh, most of the value of that, because all the value is in hundreds, most of the value of that actually goes abroad. Uh, the euro, it's the same thing. And the entire paper money space is worth about $10 trillion. The gold space, uh, the physical gold space is probably worth eight with 
two thirds of it in jewelry, one third of it in coins and bars. And then there's another a, a number of other ways that people hold phys physical value, but holding value, having tangible wealth is this like critical human need that's universal. And um, that need is greater in times of instability, whether that's national instability, um, you know, international instability, war, uh, <laughs> COVID, et cetera. Um, but, but it's just this fundamental human need that people have, and it's not going away because of a digital economy. It's actually growing. So what we're trying to do is bring modern technology to bear on that and develop uh, products that people really want to own and will hold value. So for all of that $10 trillion of paper money, almost all of it globally is losing value and people are paying for the right to have physical money by inflation. Inflation is the cost of owning physical money. And as we've seen in the last year, that, that cost could be 5, 10, 30, 50% in some cases per year. Um, gold, interestingly, and also silver, um, has this different performance where it could actually appreciate in value against paper currency. Um, and people are really drawn to that if they have access to it. So in the US, you know, we've been lucky to have a very strong currency. Globally, people are desperate to own gold. And we're trying to make that accessible to more people and, and really provide access to you know, the, the fat 80% of the market that has not had access in the last 20 years as gold has gone from $300 to $2,000 an ounce. That's fascinating. So in effect, you're, you're essentially offering a more accessible um, alternative or hedge to relatively volatile currency markets um, globally. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, we have a number of products. So, you know, you could think of this as just we make gold bills, but really we actually make gold bills for countries who want to issue gold. Um, so we're a private mint to countries. We've worked with seven countries so far. So we literally make legal tender currency for them. And then we also make private uh, gold, which by which I mean, uh, you know, so we talk about gold bullion. So gold where people are just investing in it because of the value of the gold, regardless of a, a governmental issuance. So you know, we, we serve both of those markets, um, but either way, we're trying to make gold accessible to people and, and, and give it in a more valuable form. You know, that, that's a fascinating uh, just observation that there is such a thing as, as a private mint. And, and so I think most people would be like, wait, wait really? Really? Um, so, so how much of that represents a, a growth market for you all like how many is, are do all countries essentially have some reliance on on private mints in some some form or another yeah so it's actually fairly rare by number you know if you think of the number of countries it's fairly rare that a country can have the full infrastructure uh, of a mint and printing works and even when they do they're typically uh, relying on 
private contractors to provide things like security development. So there's a whole world of uh, banknote printing and uh, coin minting, and private companies do a lot of that work. What's interesting about us is we are an absolute technological leader in the um, minting sector, and so much so that we can radically expand what governments are able to offer to their citizens. So, you know, in our country, in the United States, gold is often talked about as this kind of, or let's just say it can have a sheen of anti-governmentalism. Um, but what's interesting is the biggest issuer of, of gold and silver in the country is the U.S. Mint. And indeed, we have Ed Moy, the former director of the U.S. Mint on our board of advisors. So, you know, what from my point of view, what's most interesting to me is getting gold into the hands of as many people as possible and, and helping them to protect their wealth. And whether that's through a government or, or not, you know, we're just very eager that that people have access. So um, shifting a little bit to one of the other markets that you mentioned you're, you're serving um, as it relates to collectibles. Do you see that particular aspects of the collectibles market as um, growth opportunities for you all? You mentioned um, working with some major uh, sports card manufacturers. Um, are there other areas where you see expansion opportunities that you're pursuing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're working with a number of other licensors that we're really excited about. Um, the collectibles fit space is just fascinating. And, you know, one of the things we saw through COVID was just this incredible growth of things like, I mean, crazy stuff like Pokemon cards selling for tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars and uh, sports cards, the same thing. And, um, you know, of course, there's a robust art market and, and so on. Um, so, you know, we really think that can grow. And we have a couple of uh, very intriguing brand partnerships that will be coming out in the next few months uh, that, that we think can grow there. Um, you know, and, and, and this really just kind of helps along our story of exposing something that's very, very new to people um, and, and, and giving them a way into a, a new class of ownership. So as we think about, um, you know, some of the growth of the company, um, you know, you've been on a, a bit of a tear in terms of um, expansion and building out the new facility. Um, and, you know, as, as you look to the future, what are what are some of the areas that you're going to be focused on from a hiring standpoint in terms of talent needs? Yeah, well, so <laughs> we went in 2019, we had four full time employees and uh, we're hovering around 50 in Portland now. Um, I, I think we're growing in, in two directions over the next year or so. Um, one is skilled technicians. Portland has this wealth of uh, high-tech manufacturing, um, you know, technical people. So we get a lot of our uh, operators and technicians from, uh, you know, former Intel, former LAM, um, you know, that kind of semiconductor space. Uh, people really catch on quickly. 
um, if they have that kind of background. Um, so, you know, we, we've really sought to, to hire from that pool. Um, and then we expect to be growing significantly and expanding our kind of top line uh, executive team as well. So, so really looking for more um, C-level employees who can step into roles there as, uh, you know, we keep having this thing where <laughs> what, what's one person job, one person's job halves and then halves again. And then, you know, suddenly you have four people doing it. Um, and, and we think over the next year, there's going to be quite a bit more of that. And, and so we're really looking to make more connections in that kind of, uh, sea level world in Portland and beyond. That's great. That's great. I'm sure there's plenty of people who are listening to this podcast to be like, wow, that's a really cool company. I, I would like to learn more and maybe work there. So that's good. Um, one thing I wanted to ask was, um, as you've had this sort of window into the local tech community um, over the last, you know, 10 years or whatever, um, you know, what, what are, what are some of your observations in terms of selling points that, you know, as you're looking to grow your team, you're definitely going to be accentuating because that's one thing that's top of mind for a lot of folks right now is, you know, what is, what does the next 10 years look like af after the, the pandemic inflection point, right? Because there's some trends that have stuck and others that are, you know, um, completely reoriented uh, and some are going back to normal, like normal being pre-pandemic. And so, it's it's a different world than it was going in, and um, and I'm wondering what are some of the things you're looking at that that you view optimistically for this region um, heading into the next few years. Yeah, I think well, several things, Skip. I think one thing I would say is that as this region can cultivate high tech manufacturing, I think we'll have a huge strategic advantage there. Um, I I did not want to set up a facility, say in you know not not to trash talk, but in uh, you know the Seattle area or California. I just thought the cost of living was way way too high, and it really hard for uh, you know skilled manufacturing workers to to have a, a good living. And uh, I think Portland has a still a, a reasonable balance of. Uh, livability and high 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 tech manufacturing. So I'm really excited for that in the region. I'm also excited about globally. I think that uh, the U.S. You know, it, what I would say is, ten years ago, nobody in the U.S. seemed very excited about U.S. manufacturing, um, and now post pandemic. I think there's a bit more anxiety about um, shipping everything in terms of manufacturing away. And I think that there's a real opportunity to grow certain kinds of manufacturing here and um, really develop products out of that, really develop the space. So I, I'm interested in other companies um, that are doing something similar, which is bringing something to market that is hard to make and you know seeing what what can be built here and and, and bringing good jobs with that um 
you know, I think the other thing that is is going on in Portland is, you know, when I founded Valorum, uh, there just wasn't a very big uh, investor community. And most of our early capital came from outside the region. And I, what I see is uh, some, you know, more trends toward uh, investors getting excited about this region's companies, uh, where they can really learn what they're doing, understand what they're doing, and, uh, per, you know, hopefully have a, a greater connection to the company. So, um, you know, I'd really encourage your listeners and, and the broader Portland community to like get involved with what, what are the exciting up and coming companies in this area and, uh, you know, see if you can be a part of that. Um, and, you know, that's not, that's not investment advice. It's just, you know, a simple observation of uh, we do have some exciting companies and, and, um, I'd love to see more people in the region participate in that. Uh, great observations. I mean, I think just anecdotally, uh, we're seeing far more interest um, from out-of-state VC and private equity funds uh, in the last, I'd say, probably four months than I've seen since pre-pandemic in, in terms of making visits to the area, what are the companies that you know we're seeing that they should be paying attention to, et cetera. And of course, we've got to your point, like some interesting local funds that have grown in size and capabilities over the last five to 10 years. And that's that's a good thing, especially at the early stage level. Um, and and just to comment on the, the semiconductor side of things, um, I was doing a talk with Damon Runberg, who's an economist with Business Oregon, and he did a slide as part of the talk where he showed semiconductor R&D talent in Oregon, which is engineering related relative to the next 10 states that have a lot of semiconductor employees and, and workforce. Oregon is twice as concentrated, has twice as many R&D related engineers as the next 10 states combined. We are arguably the center of gravity globally for semiconductor R&D as it relates to the US. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so as I think about the fact that you all are in a very much a semiconductor adjacent category that is benefiting from the same policies and the U.S. is pursuing with attracting more uh, manufacturing activity back on U.S. soil, coupled with the fact we've got this incredible talent base here. I mean, it's it's that what you all are doing and sort of the trajectory you're on is something that I'm hopeful more folks will will start to pick up the flag and, and champion a bit more because we need more successes like yours um, in terms of what you're seeing so far here. Uh, it's a it's a great story. Um, I, so, I completely yeah, agree, Skip, and I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things I'd say is, you know, we were, we've been hugely benefited by uh, angel investors who've seen their value, you know, the value of their shares go up exponentially. And, um, you know, to the extent that people are able to get involved, not with necessarily huge sums of money in, in that angel community and, and looking for early stage companies. I'm really passionate about that. You know, people have great ideas and they need capital. They need other other help. And, you know, they need they need executive help. And to the extent that we can have, you know, take those, uh, you know, good engineers, good people doing R&D people coming up with innovative ideas and turn those into uh, companies and industries 
that can change the world. I, I, I just, I would love to see this, this area do more of that. I think there's real opportunity for growth there over the next 10 years. And, um, I know, I know you're passionate about that as well. And, and I'm, I, I couldn't be more passionate about it. I mean, as somebody who's done it sort of the hard way, I, I, I think there's a lot more <laughs> that could be done there. I think most founders would, would ask, is there an easy way? <laughs> <laughs> I certainly haven't found it. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, so, so as we um, kind of come up to our, our 30 minutes or so here, um, can you think of, is there a topic or sort of a, an observation that we haven't covered that, that you would like to kind of end with here as we, we wrap up? Yeah, I think that one of the things that is is interesting about you know this the space you're creating about this region is you know we we have this center of excellence exactly or what you're saying around uh, semiconductor R and D and and some other kind of global brands and. I think there's a tendency for the investment community and um, just top talent in, in this area and, and throughout the United States to really be pretty parochial. Um, and what I mean by that is we tend to think of the U.S. market first. We have you know global reasons for that. Um, but I'm hugely excited by the opportunities in uh, developing countries. Um, and I think that the uh, the taste, the growth in those markets, the uh, the needs of you know the next couple billion people um, who will be growing in wealth and what they want is absolutely critical. And um, you know, most of gold consumption is is in Asia and India and China are the two leaders. And that is only gonna grow. Um, there are a hundred other examples of where is taste going? Where are the, the markets for consumption going? And I think we could do mu a much better job in the kind of entrepreneurial community thinking about what do we as, a, you know, what is our expertise, but also how can we shape products and market movement for a much more international audience. And I, I'd like to see more of that. And I think we, we all have something to learn about that, Valorum included. That's, that's a great observation. And I think for a state like Oregon, that's relatively small in terms of the size of its economy, a lot of tech companies have to, by nature, be export oriented from the beginning. And so I love it that you're challenging folks to think even bigger, right? Yeah, the US market's big. But you've got all these opportunities globally that are emerging, um, and it'd be a shame to to ignore them. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, well, thanks again for um, for sharing your story with us and spending some time. I know you're busy. Um, it's it's one of the more fascinating companies I have to say I've come across in 14 years of of covering startups <laughs> and tech companies in the local area. So that uh, I I think that says a lot. Um, because uh, I've seen a lot. But uh, thanks for spending the time with us today. Uh, look forward to doing more work together uh, and helping um, you know, support you and your, your efforts over the course of this next year and beyond. And uh, thanks again for spending time with us. Appreciate it. 
Thank you, Skip.